Welcome. Um, it's neat to have that, those moments, isn't it? In the midst of just hectic, busy weeks and, and life, to, to have time to, uh, to just be still before an audience of one as we stand before God. That's a pretty powerful and needed thing, I think, in, in what it means to be human. So thank you for entering in in those times. Um, can I invite our ushers? to come forward. Uh, we're going to take our normal tithes and offering. Timberline family, you know this is for you. Guests, we don't ask you to give, but uh, we, we do uh, appreciate and um, are, are deeply, deeply grateful for, for the faithfulness of Timberline family to impact locally, uh, around the block, as well as around the world. So thank you so much for your faithfulness to give in those ways. Um, oh. Are they off? Oh, sorry, I reached my pocket. I was going to, um, this week I, I had one of these kind of unique, like life-shattering experiences where I updated to the new software on my phone, and um, it's like my whole life is just different, you know, it, everything is, everything's different, like every minute of my day, I'm, you know, I'm wondering, like, am I going to be able to find my appointments and my calendar, my schedule? Any, anyone in here have updated to the new iPhone? Okay. Has it thrown? You guys like it? Do you not like? No. We should have like a cheering, like for yes or a, a boo or a yay or something like that. Um, I was thinking back. This also kind of marks the. It was about two years ago that that the, you know, who we've kind of lauded as this technological genius, Steve Jobs, um, who was really the 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 brainchild of of Apple, passed away. He died, and um, just. I think it was the day before he died, they, you know, released this, you know, the new phone and all that sort of thing. And there was this really interesting conversation going on after the death of, of Steve Jobs. And there's one particular um, article that, that was written by um, a newspaper in the UK. It's, it's a very secular paper. The author of it is a gentleman um, by the name of Neil Lawson. Neil Lawson, he's not a believer, he's an atheist. It's a, it's a very secular, kind of a left-leaning uh, newspaper in, in the UK. And there was this really interesting point that he brought up in this conversation that was going on about the role that, that technology has played to kind of fill the hole of a, of a vacuum in our culture. And listen to the words of secularist Neil Lawson. He writes, two things separate us from other animals. Our knowledge that we're going to die, and our thumbs. <laughs> death, he writes, death in a secular society, this is the worldview that he's coming from, death in a secular society is a crucial factor in the consumerism of society. Now, here's the key. Listen to what he says here. He writes, if we know that we're going to die, then we have to fill the void with something. Because remember, according to atheist worldview, you die, that's it. You're worm food. We just, essentially, it's extinction. Anything to avoid, he says, anything to deny, or anything to put off the inevitable horror of the end of our life, he writes. And he says, Apple electronics have helped us fill this gap as much as any other brand has. He says, but electrical equipment, no matter how well-styled, can only be so much of a, of a distraction. In the, in the end, he says, this is really interesting, in the end, life has to be about more. Um, and he goes on to talk about this idea that our, 
um, our obsession kind of with the newest technology, which, I mean, that's me, man, the newest update. I don't care if it's going to slow your phone down. I'm like, oh, my God, I have it. It's new. You know, something to play with, something to try out. He says this kind of obsession with it, he says, simply points out the vacuum at the heart of our society. And he says, here's, what's, here's, here's what creates that vacuum, that this is all there is, right? Because that's, that's, that's the conclusion of a secular worldview. This is all there is. It's, it's ironic that about 400 years earlier, Steve Jobs, a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal, who, if you know anything about Pascal, he's the inventor of the modern computer. Uh, he invented the calculus, or the calculator. He, he, he proved the existence of a vacuum. And Blaise Pascal writes this. He understood before his death at age 38 what, what Steve Jobs didn't quite figure out. Pascal wrote, being unable to cure death, you know, this, I can't get past it, it's there. Being unable to cure death, men have decided that in order to be happy, they must repress thinking about such things. Diversion, keep yourself busy, look at other things. See, Pascal got it. The deep brokenness, the deep darkness of the human heart and all of it kind of ending at death and because it's just so stinking uncomfortable to think about. It's, it's I don't want to look inside myself and see the reality of my brokenness, of my darkness and where, where it's all going to end. Because of that... We think we solve things by just distracting ourselves, by, by getting the latest update, by getting the iPad, the iPhone, the i whatever, new technology, new things, busyness, just constantly noise in our life. See, Pascal says we need to find, quote, some more reliable means of escape, because we do have to escape this death thing, he says, hopefully, because distraction, he says, only passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. See, distraction, it's like a narcotic. <laughs> and, it, and it just sort of keeps us pacified as we're racing toward the cliff that we're going to go off of. Pascal noted, this, this thinker, this secular thinker who kind of looked at, at the whole life of, of what Apple has done and created. And so our obsession with distraction, I would suggest, is why this series, why anyone... I mean, why anyone would even ask the question, but we constantly do. What is, like, what does it mean to be human? Like, what's involved in it? Why, why would we ask what it means to be human when we are human? I mean, if anyone should know, we should. I've, I've been human for 38 years, and I don't know what human is. Why not? Because it's so elusive. Because it's so marred and it's so broken, oftentimes I don't even want to look at it. It's, it's uncomfortable, the question. And the answer might be even more scary and frightful than the question itself. So we're in this series looking at what does it mean to be human, and each week kind of saying, okay, let's, let's take a different component and say, like, what, what does this mean? You know, the Bible says we're relational. Like, what's that about? So if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 19, through verse 25, Genesis 2, 19 through 25. Now Yahweh God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Yahweh God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then Yahweh God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why, the author goes on to explain, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And verse 25 ends with this description of the nature of relationship at that first moment. Adam and Eve were both naked, but they felt no shame. See, this week brings up what I would suggest is maybe the most central aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. There's a lot of components, but, but this one seems to be maybe key. We are relational creatures. And we've been looking at this idea that, that humanity is like defaced art. That, that it's this gorgeous, valuable piece of art, this, this, this portrait created by a master. And so there's beauty there, but we only see the beauty by looking through kind of like brokenness, uh, something being defaced, uh, desperately wrong. So it's, it's like vandalism. And vandalism is that much more tragic when it's on something that is of great value and great worth. And this sort of thesis that, that Pascal talks about lines up with the Bible's explanation that we are defaced art. We are vandalized masterpieces, image of God, great beauty, and great wickedness, great brokenness explained in one creature. And some of that explains for, you know, man, why don't I get myself? Why don't I understand myself? And yet this component here, too, we're, we're relational. Even that is touched by sin because every part of the human being has, has a fracture, and it's more than a hairline, a deep brokenness to it. It's marred. It's, it's smeared. And so even though it's, in this passage, poetically done, the author of Genesis wants to be really clear. And so he does something really kind of interesting. He does it in a, in a literary fashion. One thing he wants us to see, he doesn't want us to miss three things. And if you have a, uh, uh, a bulletin and you're taking notes, there, there are three observations that the author of Genesis kind of drives home to say, here are three things I don't want you to miss because if you're wrestling with this whole being human thing, this is the beginning. Let me explain it to you. Don't miss these pieces. So the first thing we see, number one, is the human need for companionship, deep community, relationship. See, the standard is laid right here. These are the blueprints. Is this, quote, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, it's interesting. Do you realize this is the first time something said not good? You read Genesis 1 and 2, and it's, you know, he created this, and he said it was good. He created this and good, and he created this, and the birds and the fish, and the, all this stuff. And he said, good, good, good. And he gets to one point, and he goes, not here, though. See, the author wants us to see, oh, wait, something, something's not complete. It's not finished. It's not done. And he goes, no, no, this is not good. 
Now, um, we have to understand this is broader than marriage. He gets to marriage in a second. This is talking about human relationship in, in, in general. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul gives, says, singleness is a great calling by God. Jesus was single. Paul the Apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was single. So this is not a statement saying singleness is bad. It's saying human creatures are not meant to be out of deep community with one another. There's this insufficiency that I have in and of myself. And so he goes on to say, I will make a helper suitable for him. Someone, someone who can work together like a puzzle piece who, who fits. And um, there are to be sexual partners. Uh, it, we read becoming, it, it's stated three times, which is significant, becoming one flesh. Now, in the ancient language of, of Hebrew, there's no exclamation points. <laughs> there's no italics. When you want to emphasize something, you say it three times. Remember, we read in one of the prophets, it says, the angels are singing of God, holy, holy, holy. Why three times? Because it's emphasis. It's saying, I'm underlining this, I'm italicizing, I'm putting an exclamation point. Holy, holy, holy. Three times here the author says, one flesh, one flesh, one flesh. Getting at this idea that I do not want you to miss this, reader. This is important to understand how this human partnership works here. Um, and so what we see is that humanity is relationally insufficient by themselves. I'm not okay on my own. I'm not okay being a lone ranger out there. So that's the first thing, relational insufficiency. The second observation we see is that there is a divine provision, meaning God provides what was missing, what, what wasn't quite there. Um, notice Adam, what Adam was not told. Adam was not told, hey, go, go find something to, fill, you know, to fit this need. You need something, go figure out, go find something that, that suits you, that works for you, that's right for you. He says, no, 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 I know just the thing. I know just what you're missing in this case. And so a special creation was necessary. Divine surgery under divine anesthesia. And somehow, out of Adam, male and female emerge. And Adam wakes from the sleep, and before him he sees, he sees a reflection of himself, but, but different. It's like, this thing had glories that, that he didn't have. His glories were different than this other one's glories. But it was still a part of him. And it's this weird picture that the author's drawing up. And then God himself, I love this picture, God himself brings, says, God brought Eve to him. You come to a wedding, you know the first thing you see, we all see this, right? When it starts, the time you stand up, right? When do you stand in a wedding? It's when the bride comes down, right? And who's bringing the bride? Yeah, the father. And remember, the, fa the father brings the bride, and he walks her down, and he takes her hand, and he goes, here you go. And see, we do that because we're reenacting this idea that we're insufficient in and of ourselves relationally, and God says, I'll bring you what you need. I'll meet what you need. Don't go looking for it by yourself. Don't make up some concept as, well, this fulfills me. He says, I know what you need. You need deep community. And we reenact that picture, sometimes unknowingly, Every single time we do that. And so God brings them. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, these, these are the engineering plans for human flourishing. The third thing that we see, we see uh, humanity's insufficient need companionship. Secondly, that God provides the need. 
And then thirdly, we see this idea of um, marriage as an institution is the result, or kind of the resulting institution of marriage. Um, author writes, for this reason, meaning here's the why, here's why we do this whole thing. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. John Stott, in a, in a great book called Decisive Issues Facing Christians Today, Listen, listen to some of these comments that he writes about, about this. He says, even, even if you're an inattentive reader, you're just kind of scanning the text. He says, you're going to be struck by the reference to flesh. This is you know, flesh, flesh of my flesh. They will become one flesh. He says, we can be certain that this is deliberate and it's not an accident. It teaches that heterosexual intercourse in marriage, he says, and I love it, he says, it's more than a union. It's a kind of a reunion. Remember, she's taken out and brought back. It's not a union of alien persons who do not belong together. It's not men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? They were actually one originally um, and cannot appropriately become one flesh. He says, on the contrary, it is the union of two persons who were originally one, were then separated from each other, and now, in the sexual encounter of marriage, come together again. In Genesis, male and female, they're not exactly alike, but they're not randomly different. It's a totally different picture. And what we see in the scripture and, and from our experience is that th this thing that he's talking about here, th this one flesh, th this, this sexual union, which is more than just a, a bodily interaction. He says later on as you read through scripture, it talks about this, it's this full sharing of like soul, life, pocketbook, all you, everything of what you are, it's a union of those things. And what we see in scripture is that sexuality or the act of sex serves as, as a lifelong covenant-making action between a husband and a wife. It, it seals their bond, and we discover other things. It does stuff like it softens one person to the other, right? It, it creates trust because it's the most vulnerable place, and, and it creates this really, really unique relationship. Tim Keller um, wrote a book, I think it just came out this last year, it's called The Meaning of Marriage, one of the best books that I've, that I've read on marriage. And he's got this really interesting point. He says, um, uh, if you have sex outside of marriage, uh, he said, you're in danger. Here's the danger. You're going to have to protect yourself, seal yourself off from the power of sex. And here's what he means. He said, you're going to have to protect yourself. He said, because sex's power is to soften your heart toward that other person. It's to, it's to make this really unique, trusting scenario. You become really vulnerable, and, and it's this unique, weird, mysterious soul bond that takes place. And he says, the problem is this. If you have sex with multiple different people, eventually, sex will lose this mysterious covenant-making power. It's going to lose it for you. So ironically, he says, sex outside of marriage actually works backwards. It makes it more difficult for you to trust. It makes it more difficult for you to be really vulnerable with another person. It makes it more difficult for you to cleave or, or make this bond to another person. So you'll actually lose the person who engages in this. You'll actually lose what it is that you're trying to get. Because see, what we all want, I would suggest more than anything else, is, is to be known by another person and yet fully accepted, right? Remember that, remember that Genesis 2.25? Adam and his wife were both 
naked, totally vulnerable, a state of total vulnerability. He says, but no shame. See, the thing we want, the two things we want, but here's kind of the catch-22 because sin entered in, this over here. I want to be known and I want to be loved. But if you knew me, you wouldn't love me, right? So I hold back and you don't, won't really let you know me and so you don't actually love the real me. <laughs> you see that? It's this catch-22 because sin entered the world. How has sin impacted this component of we are, we are relational creatures? Um, I want to look here at, at what the author goes first. Now, this is, this is, again, really interesting. If you look at what the authors of Genesis is painting, notice the first rebellion. Adam and Eve say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. They spit in his face. They take up arms against him. They rebel. They run, however you want to look at it. There's this rebellion against their creator relational break, and look at the next two stories that are given. The author is trying to tell us what else is broken. The very next story in Genesis 3 is, is that marriage, which is meant to be the most intimate, is now characterized, the most intimate relationships, he says, are now characterized by inadequacy, shame. Remember, they cover up, and he says, you know, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're naked. I just, you know, I'm, I'm insecure now. I'm trying to cover up. So now it's characterized by insecurity and finger-pointing and blaming. Well, you know, why'd you do it? It's her. She did it. And she says, no, it's this. And, and so there's this blaming now that has come into play in the deepest of relationships. Go to the very next story, Genesis 4. What is it? It's brothers. And in an ancient kinship culture, brothers should be the most trusted thing you can count on, the one who's got your back, Cain and Abel. And what's meant to be this protecting kinship characterized by, by taking care of the other one's self-sacrifice, becomes now a picture of self-interest at the expense of the other. It's not watching their back, it's stabbing them in the back. And you just see this, it's like the whole rest of the story turns into this tragedy as this corrosive, underlying, weird, mysterious reality of sin in the human heart ekes its way out, and all of creation is corroded. It's, it's defaced art. And so earlier, I called this component being relational, maybe the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. And yet, it's where it starts, it's like one of the most obvious broken pieces. So I want to suggest here that it is your heart's deepest longing, and yet it is your greatest fear to be known, to be in that kind of deep community we want real relationships more than anything else. And if you don't believe me, tur turn on the radio, turn on your, your iPod, right, and uh, click through. How many of the songs are about love, are about relationships, are about being pursued? Want, I want someone to want me, I want someone to pursue me, or I want to pursue them. I, the majority of our songs, what do we sing about? One thinker once said, let me write the songs of a culture. I don't, I don't care who writes its philosophy. Because what he was saying is, the songs create culture. What are all our songs about? About relationship. We want relationship. It is one of the most deeply ingrained aspects of who we are because we're made in the image of God, I would say. And it's not just a desire. It's a need. So if you want to just um, make some... I want to just kind of make some observations, look at some of the tensions here as we go about um, how, how do we do this whole relational thing and yet deal with the reality that, that we're really broken 
So let me just walk through a couple things here. The first thing I want to say is um, you will only grow and mature within community. I will only grow and mature in community. Um, if you turn to the book of Ephesians, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.14, the context is Paul's saying, you guys, the goal of life is to be like a mature person. It's, it's to reach your potential of who God has made you to be. That's the goal. And so he paints a picture of what that looks like. Listen to this. Verse 14, he says, then we will no longer be infants. Now, this isn't, you know, Jesus lots of times talks about be like a child. This isn't being like a child in a, in a simplistic way. This is childishness. We won't be infants anymore. Tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love. That's relational talk. Who do you speak the truth in love to? Another person, community. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every way the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Verse 16, for from him the whole body, communal language, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds its, itself up in love as much as each part does its work. Now look at this. It says, speaking the truth in love, grow into not mature individuals, he says, grow into a mature body. This is corporate language. The only way you will grow into the person that God has designed for you to be is if you are entering into some form of deep community in your life. A few, uh, I don't know, it was a couple years ago or so, my, my son, I don't, I don't know where he got it but, from, but my son Keaton got this. This is a rock tumbler. Have you seen these before? And uh, these, these rock tumblers, it's, we did it for a couple times, and then it's been sitting in the garage unused. But he was all excited, and we went out, and we, we found these little pebbles. And, you know, they give you some, and they're, and they're real rough rocks. They're, they're hard and sharp. You, you'd step on them, you'd cut your foot. And we went outside and found some in the yard and all this stuff. And we put it in here and then, and then put this rock tumbler in this machine. And what it does is it, 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 it smooths and it, and it softens even, even the tiniest areas that are, that are rough. It it smooths them out in a really significant way, and it polishes them. Um, and see, I would suggest that's, that's kind of what deep community does. As we, as we interact with others, we're bumping into them, interacting, relationships, it's, it's smoothing out, and it's, it's taking away a lot of those rough shapes. You ever know someone who's got like really rough edges in their personality and their character? If, if you don't turn around, look at the person behind you, so you can show them someone who does. Um, everyone has these things. See, here's why I need others to grow. When I'm by myself, you know what I do? I give myself credit for, for spiritual growth kind of on the scale, you know, I'm growing. You know why? Because hypothetically, I'm growing because I agree with Jesus' teachings. I agree with stuff like, um, I should love my enemies. 
I agree. I totally agree with that idea of Jesus. I agree with stuff like I should pray for those who persecute me and not curse them. I, I agree with Jesus' teaching that I should not you know, respond with violence to those who do violence to me or people who are just stupid or people who can't drive right. I, I believe all that stuff. And so I give myself credit for it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've got a good heart, you know? This last week, um, my wife, Chris, and I were sitting in our office, sitting up front, and we're watching TV. It was late. It was like kids are in bed, and it was like 11 o'clock, and we're watching TV. And um, we have these kind of like blinds on the office where that you, you can kind of see out and you can't see too. And she goes, someone's like driving back and forth in the road. I'm like, that's weird. So I, and I see this car kind of going back, so I look out there. Well, I had put up, we have in front of our house, our kids ride their bikes and stuff, and we have one of those yellow slow children playing signs, you know? And so we had that put out like in the center of the road because I don't want my kids getting, you know, hit by cars and stuff. People are pretty good. Well, there's this one lady who I had heard earlier. She was kind of like yelling at my, you know, one of the kids like, hey, you know, get out of the road. And they said, made some comment about a stupid sign. I'd already heard about this. Well, I kind of look out there and I realized I had forgotten to take the sign out. And I'm like, what's she doing? She's running over my sign. And she, I mean, she's going, poof, 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 back, I mean, back and forth like eight times. And I'm thinking, oh, this idiot. And so I think she's going to leave. Well, she, I mean, she keeps going. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm just, man, I'm angry. I'm like, you run over my sign? What, what, do you, what do you think you are? And I've got my shorts t-shirt on. So I go running outside, like at her car like this, like screaming. And I, oh, yeah. And I didn't even know it was a woman yet. I thought it was some stupid teenager. You know, I go running out there. It's like some middle-aged lady. And I'm just like, Wah! and, and she, she takes off. And I'm, and I'm so amped. I run inside, and I go, give me my keys. So I get my keys. I run outside. I jump in my car, and Chris is like, where are you going? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to track this lady down, give her a piece of my mind. So I get in my car. I back up. I race. I'm driving around, driving faster than she was in the neighborhood, which I get mad at people doing. And I'm driving around. I can't find her. I just told her, and I'm just steaming. You know, who does she think she is? So I come driving back, and I, you know, come inside, and I'm feeling tough. Like, man, I'm show you something. So I walk inside, you know, Kristen's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, you idiot ran over my, I can't believe she did that, and what's she thinking? And, and so, you know, she, well, what, you know, what were you going to do when you caught up with her? And I'm like, I don't, I'd give her a piece, of, you know, so I start telling her, you know, what I would say to her, and I'd say this, and, and she's like, that, those are threats, you can't threaten people. You know, so then I, I kind of, you know, I feel stupid then, I'm like, you know, yeah, you think anyone saw me do that? And, you know, so I'm just, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed. But, I mean, can you believe how immature she was? <laughs> no, I felt stupid. I felt like an idiot. Um, you know, and my wife's right, but I was kind of defensive. I didn't say, you know, you're right. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I said, well, she deserved, you know. I, um, see, it's only in community that I see how sinful my heart is. Because hypothetically, I believe in all that forgive your neighbor level. But in practice, when God puts an annoying person in my life, <laughs> someone who runs over my sign, I mean, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if I agree with Jesus' teaching, right? Because I don't act in it. So I give myself credit for this hypothetical growth that in reality and community, I see I don't have. It's not there. I got a lot of rough edges still in my life, a lot of obvious needs for patience and stuff like that. Don't run over my sign. Just If you live in my neighborhood, I'm just telling you, don't, don't do it. Um, there's a, 
uh, there's a buddy of mine who, uh, Dustin Camping, he's, he'll lead, uh, in fact, I think he's leading this kind of the weekend. Sometimes he leads in, in here, leads worship for us. And, and Dustin's one of, like, he's one of my tall friends. I, I always wanted to be six foot, and I'm like 5'11 and a half, and I'm just a little bitter about it. But Dustin's like 6'3", and we used to be in a small group with Dustin, Heather, he and his wife. And, and uh, when they were over, I remember a couple times, I don't know, I probably saw the third time, he was in the kitchen. And he's, he's got a paper towel, and he's wiping the top of my refrigerator, you know. And I just kind of first, oh, that's weird. And then, like, the third time, I go, what are, you, what are you doing? And he goes, it's all, have you seen the top of your refrigerator? And I go, why would I look at the top of my refrigerator? I, I go, in my refrigerator. He goes, it's disgusting. And he's pulling, you know, you know that dust that's like an inch thick? He's pulling it off and showing me, and I'm like, ugh, you know, that's gross. It, you know. Dustin is one of those guys, because he's 6'3", and every time I, you know, Dustin and Heather are coming over, I'm like, oh, man, I got, you know. <clears throat> and I'm cleaning it off because I can't see it. I'm 5'11 and a half, for crying out loud. And so I can't see the top of my refrigerator in any way. And see, the point is, I need to allow people in my life because they're going to have perspectives and points of view that see junk that I will never see in my life. For various reasons, I have blind spots. I'm not going to see some of this insecurity. I'm not going to see some of this anger. I'm not going to see this self-centeredness. I'm not going to see this ins- all these areas and issues. I'm not going to see all the fears. When I enter into relationship with other people, deep community, deep, people will see that because some of that will start coming out toward them. They're going to they're see my fears and my insecurities and my frustrations and my angers all that stuff, they're going to see it. Tim Keller, the, the uh, author that I mentioned earlier, he's got this great question in his book. He says, and I love this line, he says, do you give people closest to you a hunting license to go after the things in your life which are not Christ-like? Isn't that interesting? Do you give people a hunting license to go after things in your life that are not Christ, like people whom you trust. And see, because here's the point. One reason God calls us to, to engage in deep relationships is in order to become your future glory self. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1.28. Paul says, the reason we proclaim the message of Jesus is so that we may, and here's his, here's his statement, so that we may admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom, so we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's your future glory self. To this end, he says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says, I get it now. The reason why God puts annoying people in my life is because I've got rough edges. That's why God allows this. And I would say to you guys, again, if, uh, if you do not have someone annoying in your life, um, call us. We will assign someone to you because there are plenty of you. I, I'm looking at some of you right now who will be assigned to others. But people in our, if you enter into deep community, people are going to annoy you. They're going to bug you. And of course, if you stay at arm's length, you're going to start giving yourself hypothetical you know, growth chart. Oh, yeah, I'm growing. I'm doing well. Why? Because I agree with all this stuff because we're not entering into community. The smooth and the rough edges. But not only that, community not only smooths out the rough edges, another cool thing that it does is it comforts us during that, during that tumbling process because this hurts, you know, going around in this thing. 
This hurts a lot. Um, Dr. Henry Cloud is, is a psychologist. Uh, he wrote a book, a, uh, book on, on leadership. It's called Boundaries for Leaders. And he, he tells of this really interesting um, study that, that took place. This was a number of years ago before you know, PETA got in control of the world. But he said they, they would take this monkey and they would put a monkey in a cage. He said, and they would stress this monkey out. Like, I mean, they'd be like banging on the cage, making noises, lights flashing really loud. He said, and the monkey's just freaking out. He said, and they would stop, and they, and they would take his blood because they can test stress levels in blood. He says, the monkey's stress levels were like out, you know, out of the roof. I mean, just crazy. Well, then he said, they did the exact same scenario, same test, lights and, and noise and bang and all this stuff, but they did one thing different. They threw the monkey's buddy in the cage. Same noise, all this stuff's going on, and they stopped, and they took his levels again, and his stress levels were in half every single time just because they threw the monkey's buddy in there. And he asked this great question of us, who's your monkey buddy? <laughs> Isn't that great? Who's your monkey buddy? That's deep community, you guys. See, next time you see someone, you're going to be like, you're my monkey buddy. They're going to what? That's kind of an odd thing to say. Um, but this is just reality, you guys, that um, there was another really interesting study, uh, a book called Bowling Alone. Isn't that a great title? Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. It's, it's sort of the definitive book uh, of this last decade about the power of community. And Putnam cited research showing that people who are isolated are three times more likely to die than those who are relationally connected. I mean, just statistically. Um, he said, simply by joining a, some sort of a small group of, of a friendship, you know, deeply connected community, he says, you cut your chances of dying in the next year in half, simply by that. Another study um, looked at hundreds of people who volunteered, I can't, this is bizarre, who volunteered to be infected by the virus that produces the common cold. And it turns out that relationally isolated people are four times more likely to get sick than people who are in community. Isn't that interesting? People um, who are less connected, it said, had, have higher levels of the virus producing, and they even produce more mucus. Isn't that disgusting? So, like, isolated people are, are snottier. I mean, <laughs> is essentially, if you're going to be isolated, you're... But th th there are just physical realities to if you are... And you know why this is, guys? Because we're made in the image of a relational God. This relational component, it's not, it's not an add-on. It's not like, do you want to do this? Um, it's, it's not an elective. It's a required course of being human in this significant way. But see, in order, here's the one piece. You think about a rock tumbler. There, the one thing I didn't bring up is there's this stuff. It's a compound that you have to put in here with the water. And I don't even know what it is, but it's some sort of a compound. If you don't put that in, all the rocks do is they either hit each other and bounce off or they hit each other and they fracture and they break. But once you put this compound in, all of a sudden it works. These, these rough rocks that are really broken and really messed up and, and they're not smooth, all of a sudden with this compound, start doing this whole smoothing process. And later you've got this beautiful stone. And see, I would suggest that, that the compound, in biblical terms, is something called grace. Because, see, we've had, we've had tons of history, you guys, of community that hasn't worked, right? I mean, just pick up, pick up a history book. 
Our, our world is scattered with broken, deeply shattered, fractured communities. But see, amidst all of that deep brokenness of community, <clears throat> stands this right here. A cross. This is the compound that allows the Christian community to be totally different. And, you know, even, even the image of it, you know, as I look at it, the, you know, the vertical beam to me is this picture of the one side of the relationship piece that, that God fixed, that in Jesus Christ, God came and he came down in the sin-soaked world and he fixed some of the stuff going on in the human heart. He restored this relationship. And then the horizontal beam is, is this picture of just as Christ had his arms open, who's allowed in this community? See, this community is characterized by, by walls that are normally up like uh, beautiful and unbeautiful, smart and not smart, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male, female, all these categories that characterize normal communities in our world and which are part of this fracturing and brokenness. All of a sudden, he says, none of those count. None of those matter. Because of this unique compound, that, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, this is a totally different community. And that secret compound is grace that allows for this thing to work. And all of a sudden, there, there's like beauty. And it still hurts and it's painful. But there's community, grace-filled community there to help even in the midst of the pain. The, uh, the author that I mentioned at the beginning, this Neil Lawson, this atheistic uh, news writer, at one point in this article said, he wrote this, um, he was talking about you know, the tragedy, death's the end, there's nothing more, that's it, kind of suck it up, deal with it. He says, we die, this is really interesting, not wishing we owned more gadgets, Apple or otherwise, we die wishing we had more time for the people we loved. And he says, the tragedy is this, we are much more beautiful, sensual, and creative than any Apple product. But he says, but can we reboot? And see, he, he gives it away. He lets the cat out of the bag because he has an atheistic worldview, which says, you know what? When a million years from now, your life, whether you loved or hated, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because it was one tiny blip in an eternity of nothingness whether you connected relationally, whether you allowed yourself to be vulnerable, whether you entered deep community, it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things according to this. But again, he lets the cat out of the bag because you see in his heart he desperately wants community. He says there's even this vacuum because of it that's created. But see, what if, what if that's not accurate? What if, what if we have this, this different picture that instead... At the center of reality, of the center of the universe, not, not physically, but at the center of creation, there's a multi-personal God who has forever, from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, been involved in this sort of wild, frenetic dance of self-giving love. And then out of that, they sp sort of spilling over, chooses to create and creates these tiny little creatures, and on them he stamps his own image, and he says, I'm going to make you like me, relational. And you're going to flourish as you're in this deep, self-giving love of relationship. And what if he loved him so much so 
that he actually allowed himself to fall into their weak, feeble, little, insecure hands and be crushed and killed. But then ironically, because of that death, he made a way for these feeble little creatures to get back to him and enter into a relationship and be rebooted in a renewed, rebuilt, reformed relationship. And it's like evil starts working backwards. <laughs> the first relationship that was broken with God, all the other relationships shattered. But if that one's repaired, all of a sudden all the other ones work. That's our prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as a community, we come before you with just, just true transparency, honesty. It, we are in too many settings during our week of putting on. And so if we feel even like with you, which is kind of weird because you know everything, you see our hearts, but if we're doing that, would you just stop us by the power of your Holy Spirit? God, I pray for the people who, who have been hurt and ripped off, maybe by their own choices, by others, and relationally, they, they don't enter into deep community very well because of some serious and legitimate hurt in the past. God, would you surround them with the body of Christ? Would you help them to make those decisions to walk into deep community and begin the healing process? That they would walk into that, that grace-filled, that compound that's here, I pray, in this community, and allow that healing process to begin Father, I also pray for those who have, who have tried to meet their relational needs their own way and, and, and they've tried some really broken areas and all they've found is that it's just fractured them even more. God, would you give them the resolve by the power of your spirit to step, to turn around, the biblical word for that is repent, but to turn around and to run after Christ to step into deep community. God, would you push all of us toward vulnerability, true transparency. God, I'm not very good at that. I get kind of scared of it, and I don't like it, and I don't even understand why, but for those of us who are in that place, God, would you do what only you can do, change our heart. We pray for deep relationships in this place. God, may, may we be characterized, this group right here, us who show up each Wednesday night, may we be characterized by this kind of open arm, cross-like, grace-filled, compound love where we won't embrace anyone, where we can be honest about our failures and our faults. And when we run out in the street and yell at people for doing stupid things, that we would seek forgiveness, we would confess, and we would find life. Thank you for a relationship, God. Thank you that you want a relationship with us. We're blown away by that, but we're honored, and we love you, and we receive it with grateful hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who has been the means of that relationship with you, and we said as a community, amen, amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here. We've got snacks in the back. You, you probably saw on your bulletin, we also have a table, uh, marketplace items. These are like closeout, 50% off, kind of half-off stuff. Take a look at that. It's a great opportunity. It helps people made in the image of God who are deeply broken and hurt. So we'll see you guys this weekend. Love you.